Welcome to another episode of In the Room. My name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church. And my name is Scott Holthouse, and we are excited to be with you today. We are. We have a great conversation today, conversation I had with Pastor Matt Carter about uh, his new book that he co-authored with his uh, worship pastor, Aaron Ivey, who you spoke to a couple of weeks ago. Yep. And uh, so before we get into this conversation, uh, I want to talk about Spurgeon just for a second. Okay. He is uh, arguably one of the most famous Christian figures throughout church history. Mm-hmm. And uh, the world is filled with unbelievable stories about Charles Spurgeon. Everybody has like a favorite Charles Spurgeon story. Uh, Matt Carter and Aaron Ivey's book is one of their favorite stories and lesser known stories about him. And we'll talk about that in our conversation again. But I'm curious if you have of the bios and stuff that you've read, what's one of your favorite stories about Charles Spurgeon? Um, I think, uh, I think honestly the story of him coming to faith, um, and, and, and they actually touch on it in the book, but, um, I know that he, uh, he just had this sense of darkness in his life from such an early age. And, and even actually reading the book, hearing uh, he, he spent a lot of time with his grandparents and seemed like his grandfather was a tremendous man of faith. And um, it seemed like salvation was something he longed for yet didn't quite feel like he had. Um, mm-hmm. And so the story of him just sitting in the back of a church and hearing God's word preached and, um, uh, you know, what, what strikes me is that nobody really knows that preacher's name. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. really remembers him. And I even wonder if he, I mean, he probably knows now cause he's dead and in heaven. Um, yeah. but, uh, just realizing what God's doing through that, um, person preaching the word at a small yeah. church in England, knowing that somebody who would change, uh, an impact much of Christianity was sitting there and God God was about to, you know, bring him to faith, I think is, is amazing. Yeah. As a preacher, my favorite story about him is about him as a preacher, but I've read that his, his process was a lot of the time he and his wife would have people over for dinner and tea on Saturday evenings. And then at seven, it was very well known that he would like retire to his study and um, he would kind of, have his text and he'd hammer out what his outline was going to be. And then his wife would come in and just read commentary to him and he would listen to it. But one night he went to bed and did not have his sermon nailed down. And my understanding was went to bed pretty anxious about that. Didn't know what to do. But in the middle of the night, as he was sleeping, was talking in his sleep and actually preaching in his sleep (laughs) so much so that his wife sat up and grabbed a piece of paper and wrote down the sermon, like the outline of the sermon that he was saying. And Charles Spurgeon woke up the next day, she gave it to him, and he freaking preached that sermon that Sunday. That's, ball, that's baller when you're writing sermons in your that's sleep. That's baller. I'm just saying. Yeah. So And they're so good that you get up and you can preach them the next you day. You just throw down. Man. Yeah. It's awesome. That's awesome. It's and awesome. And he should write a sermon prep book because it'd be super much, uh, so much better than mine. Yeah. The sermon of your dreams. That's what he should call that's it. That's right. <laughs> the yeah. sermon of your dreams. That's yeah. good. How to sleep well right, and write so, sermons. <laughs> so uh sat down with matt carter had a great conversation with him we got to talk a little bit about the austin stone uh, a little bit about preaching and what he hopes his legacy uh, as a preacher is and then about this book and about uh, spurgeon in particular i really enjoyed my time with him so come on in the room for my conversation with pastor matt carter 
Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on In the Room. Uh, We appreciate having you. Excited to talk about your new book, Steal Away Home. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we'd love to just start with a little bit of background on you for people who aren't super familiar with you and the Austin Stone and your ministry. So I know that you were uh, born in Texas, um, born into uh, a Christian home, if that's right. Uh, So tell me just a little bit about your spiritual upbringing and what that was like for you growing up in Texas in a Christian home and really how you came to faith. Yeah, man. So I was uh, was born in uh, just a little small town in East Texas called Athens, Texas, and uh, grew up there, um, was was in church nine months before I was born. <laughs> you know, I've been, been yeah. in church my whole life, and I think I came to faith uh, in, in Christ at a pretty early age. I was I was aware of my sin. I was aware of my, uh, aware of my need for a Savior, and um, I, I had an affection for the Lord, I think, at an early age, like a, like, like a lot of kids, mm-hmm. junior high and high school, kind of walked away from Him, if you will. My faith wasn't important at all, and, and then I went to Texas A&M for uh, for college my freshman year and um it was really that year that i think the lord truly captured my heart i made a decision to follow him and and uh and i've never looked back since then and it was during college i've kind of felt a call to ministry and mm-hmm. to preach and uh through a through a series of events here i am but that's that's the quick version of yeah. my, my faith story now i think i read you went into <laughs> undergrad pre-med didn't you wasn't that your plan that was a plan, man. I, I always wanted to be a doctor growing up, and and that was really mainly, I think, um, my parents were not poor, but we were far from rich. We were very, very, very middle class, and yeah, I got told no a lot growing up. You know, yeah. different things couldn't afford it, and I got sick of hearing that, and so I made yeah. a decision pretty early that I'm going to do everything I can to make a lot of money, so I don't have to tell my kids no. Yeah, um, but God had different plans. Yeah. So it's a pretty big decision to pivot from medicine to vocational ministry. So what? You said you felt a call uh, yeah. to ministry, but what exactly led to that decision to, to make that move? Well, again, I, my freshman year, I just really started walking with the Lord. He captured my heart. I knew I wanted to follow Him. And it really, the, it all started with a friend of mine out of the blue. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but he said, man, have you ever thought about being in the ministry? Mm-hmm. And um, and I never had. If you had asked me at 18, you know, list the top 100 professions that you possibly <laughs> could could end up getting into, ministry wouldn't have made the top 100. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that statement just got me thinking, and I thought about it for a few days and thought, well, you know, I'll probably I'll start praying about this and prayed about it for a long time. And the, the the sense that God was kind of prodding my heart would not go away. So I started talking to pastors, and and um, and, the, and that just made it worse. I'm like, man, yeah. God, are you calling me to this? Wrestled with it. Didn't want to give up this medicine thing. Didn't want to give up money. Had parents telling me that was the, would be the dumbest thing I could ever do. Yeah. And, uh, man, I was driving and um, was working my sophomore year in college. was driving home um, from a college job and, and uh, really wrestling with this, whether or not I was going to surrender to be in the ministry vocationally. And uh, this is really kind of stupid and kind of cheesy, but um, I turned the radio on. Yeah. And um, and this is right after I was praying, God, do you do you want me to surrender my life to you? And, and I turned the radio on, and, and it was just kind of happened to land. I was in the middle of nowhere, land on this Christian radio station, and a guy named Al Denson mm-hmm. um, was singing a song called Will You Be the One to Answer to His Call. 
And will awesome. you stand when those around you fall? Will yeah. you take his light into a darkened world? Will you be the one? And when when I turned the radio on, I'd been praying. And when this this literally those the first words I heard, I, yeah. I kind of took that as God answering my prayer. I pulled over yeah. on the side of the road crying. And I said, God, I don't care where you want me to go. I don't care where uh, or what you want me to do. Uh, I'm yours. And that was really the beginning of uh I would say my call to ministry. That's awesome. So what happened after that? So did you, did you finish up at Texas A&M? I did. Um, I changed my major from, from, uh, medicine to history because that was the easiest thing I could think of. And, uh, and, and through a series of events became a, a volunteer at a youth ministry there in town and served there for about a year. And then their, their youth pastor left to go to seminary and they offered me the job. And I took it, and that was kind of my first student ministry ministry position, and and um, and that was really what, the catalyst to me being in full time vocational ministry. All right. So, did you go straight from undergrad to seminary, or did you have a season of just working in the church, and then did that on the side, or how did that work for you? Yeah, I had a season of working in the church. I had I don't remember who told me this, but somebody told me it would be valuable to have a little bit of time. Um, actually on the ground doing ministry. And so that when you go to seminary, you're, you're able to kind of filter through the stuff that's going to be helpful and, and the stuff that's not going to be helpful. And that was really good advice. I think it was yeah. four years of ministry before I started seminary um, okay. at, at Southwestern Baptist. Yeah. Okay. So how then did, I mean, everybody that follows your ministry now knows about the Austin Stone. You guys have seen tremendous fruit. And uh, so how did you come to that decision to plant the Austin Stone? Well, I I realized quickly that I could preach. I didn't know I had that gift until I was kind of forced to do it one day and, and really felt the empowering of the Spirit. It realized, kind of understood spiritual gifting for the first time. I'm like, well, yeah. I have this ability that is obviously given from God because I've never yeah. experienced it in any other place. And so was really experiencing, <clears throat> excuse me, was really experiencing this um, passion to preach, was in the ministry felt the desire to lead, but I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go and, and take over an existing church. I think I had heard a bunch of horror stories yeah. around that time. My buddies that had gone in, that were called to the ministry about the same time I did, that had gone into these little, you know, small town Texas churches and just got murdered. And I thought, yeah. man, I don't want to do that. So I started praying uh, every day. I, mm-hmm. I prayed every day for probably three years. I was like, Lord, if you want me to start a church, I'll do mm-hmm. it, but I need you to make it clear to me. I don't yeah. want to just go do it yeah. because that's the thing to do. I was taking a church planning class in seminary and uh, I assessed really well during that church planning class. And so that was kind of a confirmation. And then yeah. um, at the end of the class, our our final was to interview a church planner in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because I was taking seminary at Southwestern at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I was on my way home to Houston at, at the end of the class and and because um, I was a youth minister in Houston. And yep. there was a church planner that was kind of on the way to Houston. So I called him on a Friday afternoon, said, hey, man, I know you're probably busy. I am driving to Houston. I've got to get this this interview done for the class. Could you see me? He's like, you know what? I just had a I just had a, a meeting that canceled. Why don't you come on over? So I went over there and kind of told him my story about how I'd been praying for three years. Um, if God wanted me to plant a church to, to make it clear. And he said, well, 
I got some interesting news for you. He said, I am the head church planning recruiter for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, and I would love to offer you a church plant right here on the spot. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, wow, that's pretty clear, Lord. And so yeah. um, that was kind of how the ball got rolling there. Um, went home, told my wife. Uh, went home and told uh, my worship leader that I worked with at the time and in, uh, in, in Houston, which was Chris Tomlin, pretty famous yeah. worship leader. Yeah. And um, I was preaching the next morning. Chris was leading worship, and uh, Tomlin walked up to me right before we walked into the sanctuary, and he said, man, I couldn't sleep last night. He said, realizing that you'd been given this opportunity to plan a church, he said, number one, I want you to go with me, or I want to go with you, rather. Yeah. And he said, two, I think God's calling us to Austin, Texas. Hmm. And I thought that was an interesting statement because, uh, again, I went to Texas A&M. They yeah. were, you know, 100-year rivals with the University of Texas. I was yeah. I was raised and trained to hate Austin and hate the University of Texas. And yeah. so I told Chris, I said, first of all, man, I'd love for you to go with me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, having the best worship leader in, in America at the time is a positive thing for a church plant. Absolutely. And I, I said, too, man, there's no way in, in, in Sheol, brother, that we're going to Austin, Texas. Yeah. And, um, but the more I prayed about it, um, realized Austin at the time was one of the un, most unreached cities in the nation, and um, and and that's eventually where God God land, uh, landed us. And so I'm glad glad we did. Yeah, it's awesome. Why? Well, I know that you don't. So how old is the Austin Stone now? Fifteen years this year. So fifteen years, been there the whole time. You don't make it fifteen years, especially in the same place without your own share of difficulties and obstacles you've had to overcome. So can you maybe tell me a story about a specific season that you went through where you were facing some particular difficulty in ministry and what were some things that really helped you endure that? There's been two seasons where it's been incredibly difficult. I think the first one is, is, um, uh, had some elders that, um, that I had gotten really close with that decided one day they didn't like me and didn't like the vision of the church and, and, um, lost relationship with them. They left the church. And, and and to me, that's one of the most difficult things about planning a church and being a pastor is that inevitably, if you stay long enough, you're going to hurt people. You're not Mm going to mean to, but you will. Mm -hmm. And they're going to hurt you. And, and I'm kind of a, I'm a sensitive spirit in that way. I don't like hurting people. I don't like disappointing people. Yeah. And so that's always been very, very difficult um, to, seasons to go through. The, the way I've gotten through it is, is one kind of the obvious one is that you you find your your deepest and most sustaining relationship in Jesus. Yeah. Just realizing He's never going to leave you. Yeah. And then your wife, you know, really mm-hmm. pursuing her heart and. And keeping that that relationship at the forefront of what you're doing, and those kind of things will get you through it. And two, surrounding yourself with with men that are gospel centered, that realize their own failings, that realize their own sinfulness, and mm-hmm. and repent easily. And you can just you can get through just about anything mm-hmm. with men like that. And so, right. since that time, I, I we haven't lost anybody. And, yeah. and and so I learned a lot about the kind of men and their hearts that you surround themselves with. And man, honestly, this last season has been really difficult. Um, hmm. I, uh, for the first time in, in really our history, we have take, begun taking a significant amount of criticism from the community about our stance against um, uh, homosexual marriage mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing. And, and it's it's gotten pretty ugly the last couple of months. Yeah. And um, and so I've been navigating those waters. Received a ton of hate mail and 
been called a lot of different things. And so um, I would say for maybe for really for the first time in my life, I would mm-hmm. say I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing maybe some persecution yeah. for biblical stance and for my faith. And that's been interesting to navigate and not sure how I'm going to get through that yet. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have that part of the question yeah. answered. I mean, any any advice? We're getting ready to, you know, plant in Salt Lake City, and um, there's a massive LGBTQ community uh, in Salt Lake. Um, as you're having to speak into this, I think one of the challenges it it it's, it seems more and more it doesn't really matter how you say what you say if you are not affirming of everything, then you're going to get pushback. Um, but any advice that you do have in, in, in regard to how to speak to um, an increasingly sensitive and increasingly common issue that many churches are going to face? Well, you're, you're absolutely correct that there's no way you can say it that's going to um, alleviate all the pushback. Yeah. You know, anytime you, you stand up and say, hey, here's what the Bible says in this lifestyle that you've chosen to live is, is contrary to God's best for you. Yeah. Um, or heaven forbid that you call it a sin. I mean, you're going to get a, you're going to get a ton of pushback, but one of the things that I've done over the last few weeks is I've actually sat down with a ton of people that are in that lifestyle that are, that are in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And I just listened. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't there to correct them. Wasn't there to teach them a Bible study. Wasn't there to talk about their lives. I'll be wrong. I said, man, just tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I always asked them a question. I said, how, okay, you know, you know me, you know my stance, you know what I believe. How can I be faithful to what I feel Mm-hmm. Is is biblical truth, and at the same time, do it in a way that's not just making people feel like I hate them. Yeah, and and every one of them said the same thing, and and they said, "Well, we understand that you believe what you believe." Yeah, but when you when you do teach, when you do lead, when you do communicate, lead with grace. Yeah, lead with grace before what you perceive to be the truth. Mm-hmm. And and I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, more of a prophetic bent in my preaching. Yep. I have a tendency to say, hey, thus says the Lord, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what right. he says, what the scripture says, go do it. Where Whereas um, kind of leading with this concept of God's love and God's grace and, and into um, what you would consider to be the truth probably is the yeah. best way to do it. That's, that'd oh, that's be my good. advice. That's good. Well, let's talk about preaching for a minute because you are known as a preacher in a few minutes. I mean, you really talked about what an influence it had realizing that God had given you that gift. So I was just on the practical end. I'm always curious about this with other preachers, but tell me a little bit about what, what is the average week of prep? How does that break down for you? Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me jump back just a little bit and tell yeah. you something that happens before the week of prep. I started, we have multiple teachers at the Austin stone. Yeah. Um, I preach around 50%. Um, okay. and then we have a multiple other teachers that kind of share that other 50%. We've done that since day one. <laughs> Pardon me. And one of the things we started doing several years ago is our entire teaching team gets away twice a year for a week. Okay. And before each semester, and and we spend the first day and we line out kind of the text that we're going to preach through on each Sunday. That takes a lot longer than you would think. Yeah. Um, so we typically go verse by verse through the scriptures. And so, you know, we spend an entire day and say, okay, on September this date, we're doing this text. On September this date, doing this text all the way through Christmas. Hmm. And then on day two, we begin to um, 
outline those sermons together. And so we come up with what's called the, I have a doctorate in expositional preaching, by the way, yeah. so I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit, if that's yeah, okay. Good. No, but, it's great. Um, we, we come up with what we call the main point of the text. We call it the MPT. Yep. And so it's a sentence at the top of the page to say, okay, here's our text, and this is what the text is saying. It's just the main point of the text. Yeah. And then the next thing is what we call MPS, which is the main point of the sermon. And so we okay. have, uh, here's what we're trying to accomplish in our body through what the the text is actually saying, and then uh, and then we'll go through and kind of knock out the main points that we want to we want to talk about on that sermon, and then any you know illustrations, introductions, conclusions, applications that we might come up with, and so and so, so you're, any you're given- doing you're doing all of that on those two trips for so like you're looking at like oh wow that's huge. Now we don't put a ton of meat on the bones. It's just yeah. it's literally an outline. You yeah. know, text, MPT, MPS, main points, anything else we can think of. Yeah. So um, I don't work on – Monday's my day off, and so I don't work on my sermon on Monday. And so Tuesday uh, morning, um, I have that outline yeah. that's in front of me that's from that preaching retreat. And so, um, you know, what I'm preaching on, uh, main point of the sermon, what I'm trying to go, kind of the main points, that's already there. And so I spend, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday uh, writing the sermon. And sometimes okay. Thursday. I'm, I'm a transcript guy. I yep. have it memorized by the time I'm up in the sermon, but I, I'm a transcript guy. And so I'm writing out the sermon now. So that, so typically Thursday or Friday, I'll actually, I've got a transcript. I've sent it to one of my other guys. They're checking mm-hmm. it for theology. They're checking it for any major mistakes. They're checking yeah. it for anything I could say better. They're giving me my text, the, the notes back. And so typically on Friday, I start preaching through it. Okay. And that's a critical part for me because I'm, I'm a preacher, not a writer. And so I will inevitably say something different than the way I would actually write. It. So I preach through it, yep. and then if I were to say a sentence differently than how I would have written it, I would actually go back in and change that sentence to how it came out of my mouth. Preach through it on Friday morning. Preach through it on Saturday morning. Uh, by Saturday morning, it's completely done. Mm-hmm. Um, I step away from it all day Saturday, and then Saturday night, um, a last thing I do before I go to sleep, I don't turn the TV on after this, don't look at my phone after this, I just read through it one time. Okay. I've kind of found that for whatever reason, that just kind of cements it in my brain. And then Sunday morning I get up, I read through it one more time, and then I preach it. So do you take the transcript with you into the pulpit? I do. I take the transcript. um, I reference it. And so if you ever have seen me preach, I will look down at my notes periodically. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of for my brain to see where in the outline I am. But most of the sentences I have memorized. Okay. And then repetition (laughs) really is the main, repetition is the key to the memorization for you. Yeah, repetition and, 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 and preaching through it and then reading through it yeah. um, by, sun, by the time Sunday morning comes around. I've got it. Now, you know, one of the pushbacks I always hear is, well, does that give freedom for the Spirit to move? Well, you know, inevitably yeah. on the sermon on Sunday, there's always a little different. But my, my pushback on that is the Spirit speaks to me throughout the week as I'm right. preparing that over and over and over again. I hear His voice and yeah, put it down. That's great. Well, when you think about the state of preaching, kind of high-level, 30,000-foot view of the state of preaching right now in our culture, what are some things that you see that maybe, I know that, I mean, you don't get a doctorate in expositional preaching unless you really love preaching. So I know you pay attention to that. But when you think about the state of preaching right now in our culture, what are some things that maybe you see trends that concern you a little bit? Yeah, there's some pretty uh, high-profile pastors that have come out and and said, you know, we need to rethink the way we preach to the millennial culture, to the post-church culture. 
And I definitely think there's some truth to that, but some of these guys have kind of come out and and and, are, and, and insinuated at least that preaching the Bible is not necessarily the best way to do that. Yeah. And, 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 and look, there is some truth to how you say things. Yeah. You know, if you're in a, if you're in an East Texas Baptist church full of Christians, you can say things in a certain way yep. um, that you don't need to say in a, in a, in a downtown Austin, Texas room where half the people in the building are not churched are not believers and, um, and, and get their theology from, from MSNBC. Right. Right. But having said that, there is only one guarantee that I can have that my preaching is going to possess the power of God. Yeah. And that is when I am preaching the Holy Spirit inspired word of God. Yeah. You know, my illustrations, there's no guarantee that the, that the spirit's going to yeah. enliven that. My, my stories, my, my cool props that, you know, the Bible never promises that the only promise we have that our preaching has power is when we are preaching God's word, which That's is right. has power. And so, you know, definitely think about how you're presenting the truth. Uh, definitely think about the audience you're preaching it to. But I believe with all my heart that the preaching of God's word is the most effective way to impact people's hearts. I don't care what culture you're in. Yeah, that's good. So when you think about, you know, when I think about a lot of the preachers that I admire, there's, there's sort of specific things about their preaching legacy, if you will, that really stand out to me. Like I remember, uh, I think it was like the second or third gospel coalition. DA Carson was in, was introducing John Piper and he compared Piper to like a pit bull who grabs a hold of something and just shakes it till there's no more life in it. And he was talking about the way that Piper could take a text and basically do that. He just shakes it yeah. till he's gotten everything out of it. So when you think about your own preaching ministry, what do you hope is the main thing that you're known for? I think it's that's a great question, by the way. Um, I hope that my preaching is ultimately Christ exalting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily am one of these guys that thinks that every single sermon has to be an evangelistic sermon in nature. Yeah. But I do believe that every sermon ultimately ought to point us to Christ, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Absolutely. Um, um, these sermons that are where the, where the thesis of it is Hey, there is this action I want you to go out there and do, or this mm-hmm. is a way to make your life better. It, you know, there's some good things to that, and and there's some some positive aspects of that kind of preaching. But ultimately, I want to be, I want people to walk out of my sermon saying, "Man, I love Jesus more." Yeah. And because if if I walk out of there loving Christ more and and more in love with Him, more passionate about Him, all that other stuff is going to work itself out and going to take care of itself. Yeah. Um, check this out, man. I really do believe, and I don't have my brain completely around this yet. Yeah. But I really do believe that 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 the 30, 35, 40 minutes of that preaching is really a redemptive event more yeah. than it is a didactic time to teach your people knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Um, ideally, your people are in the Word every day. They're in small group ministry. They are growing. They're being equipped throughout the week in the scriptures, I really believe that the purpose of preaching is to draw those people into a place where they are worshiping God more. And, and knowledge is obviously part of that. Yeah. And so um, I, I have completely lost track of what your original question was. What were we talking about? About what you want your legacy to be. Like when, when yeah, people think pe- about you yeah. as a preacher. Yeah. No, that's a great answer to I, that. I want people to fall in love with Jesus when, yeah. when, uh, when they hear me preach. 
I love that. Well, your new book, Steal Away Home, you co-authored with Aaron Ivey. And so before we talk specifically about the book, I would love to talk for a second about your relationship with him. Um, because how long have you and, and so Aaron Ivy, for those that don't know is a worship pastor at the Austin stone. How long have you guys been serving together there? Aaron has been here, um, close to 10 years and okay. he and I knew each other for a few years before that. Um, I was kind of on the youth ministry speaking circuit, if you will, doing camps yeah. and retreats and he was doing the same thing. And so, man, I had done so many camps and retreats with all these different worship leaders and, um, and was really disappointed at that time with, man, how do I say this? Um, with the, with the lack of maybe an attuneness to the spirit that I was experiencing and a lot of folks I was leading that were leading worship yeah. with and lack of genuine really love for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and I met Aaron and, and men, they were rough and, and, and musically they're not, they weren't anywhere near where they are today, but there was a genuine passion and love for Jesus. There was a passion yeah. to see kids worship God. And, and there was a really an anointing of the Holy spirit. And so when Chris Tomlin left me and went to a uh, passion city church, Aaron was the first guy I thought of. I'm like, yeah. man, if I'm a, I love this guy. There was a friendship that had formed there, and so he's the first guy I called. And mm-hmm. it's one of the best decisions I ever made in my ministry career is hiring Aaron Ivey. He's a he's not only one of the best worship leaders in the world, um, but he's a he's a phenomenal pastor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you think about, I mean, that's a relationship. Oftentimes, that's tense. The relationship between like a teaching pastor, lead pastor, and a worship pastor. What have been some keys to the strength and the fruitfulness of your guys' relationship with one another? Man, we, we have always, you know, I, Aaron is Aaron is a guy that I think could um, would make a phenomenal preacher. Yeah, and I'm a guy that's kind of a frustrated worship leader, and so yeah. he has always shown me respect and and solicited my input on the set, on the flow of worship, on the direction of of the of the Sunday experience, if you will. Yeah, and and I have I have always desired to give him a freedom to be led by the Spirit, and so we've always just worked well together. I think that's grounded in a in a mutual agreement on our mission, and I think it's grounded in friendship. Um, I always grieve when I hear that pastors and worship leaders don't get along because yeah. I think when you do and you share that vision, you work well together, it can really create a beautiful thing. Well, what do you think are some keys that you could give some advice maybe to other lead pastors? Because the arts ministry at the Austin Stone has really flourished, <laughs> and I don't think that happens apart from the support and Uh, encouragement of the lead pastor. And so what would be some specific advice that you would give to lead pastors to help foster that in their churches? Well, lead pastors often um, kind of gravitate towards two extremes Mm -hmm. in dealing with their art ministry and worship ministry. One is that they're, they're, they're too controlling. You know, they're, they, they're picking the worship set. They're doing all the order of worship. They're not soliciting any input from these artists and leaders. Um, and, and so, man, if, if you know artists, you know that is the most oppressive environment you could ever put artists in. Totally. I mean, they, they by nature are creatives. They, are, they like to create. They like to dream. And so the, the pastors that I've seen doing that, they will not keep worship leaders, good worship leaders, very long because those guys want to thrive in creativity. And so the, the other extreme, 
theme, and this is probably more common, mm-hmm. is that the pastor is completely hands-off. Right. Um, they, they, they don't value worship. They don't value that aspect of of the of the worship environment and the Sunday uh, service and, 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 and what it brings to the church as a whole. And so I, I've tried to find a good balance where I, I really lift these guys up. I give them an environment where they can create, but at the same time, I'm involved just enough to let them know I care. And yeah. I'm involved just enough to let them know I value what they do. And, and there's been moments of tension uh, throughout um, the years, but um, it, it's been well, and it's. It, I think it's created an environment where worship is is critical and it's key and it's thriving here at the Austin Stone. Absolutely. Well, you can tell that even from a distance. Well, you and Aaron have worked well together again in writing uh, your new book, Steal Away Home. Uh, it's about the relationship between unlikely relationship between Charles Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson. Um, a man who at one point was a slave uh, in America. And uh, to start, the book's written in a very unique manner. It's not really a biography. Um, it's um, So just tell me a little bit about the manner in which, like the, the voice in which this book is written, how you describe what kind of book this even is, and why you chose to write it like that. <clears throat> Yeah, man. Well, years ago, I read this book called Killer Angels by uh, Michael Scherer. Uh-huh. And it was a, a book about the Battle of, Get- of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. And it was written in a really different way. It was uh, Each chapter was written from the perspective of one of the characters. And so one of the, one of the chapters would be uh, General Grant. And, and it, you know, he's, he's kind of speaking in the first person, and he's the character in the chapter. And another chapter would be a, one of the soldiers that was kind of in the battle. And, yeah. and I'm a history major. I know a ton about the facts of the battle. Battle of Gettysburg, but I'd never seen these characters come to life in the way that they did when I read this book. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature that year. Hmm. And I I thought for years, I mean, how cool would it be if we were to write in a similar way to kind of bring to life some of these characters in church history that have impacted us so much? And Charles Spurgeon is one of my heroes, famous, but probably most famous preacher that's ever lived and made such an impact um, in England in in the 1800s. And and so I thought about, man, I would. so many biographies have been written about him. We have so many of his sermons and, and so many books yeah. that he wrote that we thought, man, what if we wrote a book in such a way that kind of, one, brought this guy to life in a fresh new way like never before, but also showed us humanity. Um, there, Charles Spurgeon is such an unbelievable preacher. He had such a command of the English language that did so many good things. We've almost deified the guy. Yeah, and and when you really study him, you realize that man, this guy was messed up, just like all of us are. I mean, yeah. he struggled with sin, he struggled with health, he struggled with with uh, people betraying him, just like everybody else. And so we wanted to tell that story in a novel format, in yeah. a story format, in a cinematic way. And man, it's been cool to see the response we've gotten um, from people that said, man, this this story has brought these these characters to life in a way I, I never had experienced before. So I've read a lot of, of Spurgeon. I've read a lot about Spurgeon, and this is a story about this relationship in particular that I was completely unaware of. So yeah. at what point was there like an intersection of these two guys' lives that you learned? How did you even come to be aware of their story? Yeah, so Aaron and I were doing research for the book. We knew we wanted to write about Spurgeon's life, and but we didn't okay. know what part of Spurgeon's life we wanted to write about. And we were interviewing kind of the top Spurgeon scholar in America. His name is Dr. Christian George at Midwestern Seminary. And um, he mentioned kind of an offhanded comment about a relationship that Spurgeon had, a friendship, <coughs> pardon me, that Spurgeon had with um, a, uh, a former slave from Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing research on this guy. His name is Thomas Johnson. Uh-huh. He wrote an autobiography called 28 Years a Slave. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and in the story, he tells a story about growing up on the plantation, how he uh, he got saved on the plantation, and and, um, and and his story is unbelievable. The the trials and difficulties that he went through slavery are un- like the best movie you've ever seen. Yeah, we tell that 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 story in the book. But then he's freed uh, during the Emancipation Proclamation, and 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 kind of what's next in his life. He never thought about what do I do if I ever get out of here. But but God had really laid on his heart missions to Africa. He wanted to go back to his people and tell them about Jesus that he'd found yeah. that had given him the freedom of his soul. And so, but he wasn't educated. He wasn't educated on the plantation, and and uh, through a really cool story, he hears about this Englishman preacher that was actually against slavery, which was not a very popular thing for him to do. And yeah. Through a friend, he reaches out to Spurgeon and um, and asked if he could go to Spurgeon's college and be educated for missions. And Spurgeon writes a letter that says, "Let the dear man come." And so, this former slave <laughs> grabs his wife. They get on wow. a boat. They sail across the Atlantic Ocean, and he spends three years at Spurgeon's college. He was the very first African American uh, student in Spurgeon's college history. Hmm. And um, and and while he was there, they develop a friendship. We found some really neat kind of places where this friendship is talked about. Um, in Susanna Spurgeon's autobiography, she mentions an evening where Thomas Johnson and his wife come over for dinner. It's a fantastic story. It's a cool part of the book. Yeah. Um, Thomas mentions several instances where he interacts with Spurgeon. And so this book is a novel that tells the story not only about the, the life of Charles Spurgeon from the time he was a little boy to the end of his life, but Thomas Johnson's beginning life on the plantation, how he comes mm-hmm. to Christ, how he ends up going to Spurgeon's college, and then his time as a missionary in Africa. And, and really the thesis of all that is how their friendship helped them endure through those difficult seasons of life. It's a great story, man. I hope people pick it up and read it. I, I guarantee you they're going to be blessed by it. Absolutely. I have been so far. But what is it exactly that captured your attention about this story in particular? Well, one, it's it, it's never been told. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a friendship between uh, an English, a white English preacher, and and a black um, former slave. You you think about all the barriers culturally, geographically, educationally um, that these guys had to overcome to actually become friends, and not just friends, but good friends, yeah. is remarkable. And it's kind of this untold story in history. We, we feel like the, the time that we find ourselves in America, this is an appropriate, timely story for our, con- our country and our culture and our church about how these guys found common ground at the foot of the cross mm-hmm. and, um, and how they learned from one another and listened to one another. And it's just a really beautiful picture of friendship and uh, through, through the person of Jesus. That's good. Well, I mean, I know it's, I mean, all good stories like this teach us lessons, even though you don't intentionally set them out as precepts in this book. What what were some of the lessons that you hope people walk away with or things that really struck you as you were researching and writing through this story? There's two things. One is it's actually, we kind of fell into this, but it's in a lot of ways, it's a love story. We're, some of the best feedback we're getting is from, from women, which is really awesome. Yeah. You know, we, we go into a lot of detail about the marriages of Thomas and his wife, Henrietta. We go into a lot of detail about the marriage of Spurgeon and his wife, Susanna, yeah. and really tell their love story of, yeah. of these two men um, and their wives because they had a fantastic love story. They, they uh, amazing marriages. They weren't without trials, but it, it's fun to watch that develop throughout the book and, and so we hope folks really get a, a lot out of that. But two, you know, 
Spurgeon, for pastors that read it, Spurgeon, the amount of courage that it took for him to stand up in the pulpit and preach against the evils of slavery in the United States is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was it, He took an incredible personal toll on him for, for that stance. And But to see the good that came out of it, um, man, I, I just walked away from, I cannot be afraid mm-hmm. to stand for what is right, even if it yeah. costs me something. And Spurgeon, that, that's a, a neat part of the story that, that we didn't see coming into it, that we, we got a lot out of. Yeah, I love that. I want to ask you, just in closing, two two more questions about Spurgeon. Uh, the first one was somebody on uh, Instagram uh, named Rachel Ann. She asked this. She said, Charles Spurgeon uh, was known for, quote, pouring himself out and working too much. Uh, do you think the success of his church was tied to the fact that he didn't have a lot of uh, balance that we idolize today? So when you think, I mean, he is just I mean, famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for his output, how much he was able to do. Also, even as you mentioned, didn't have great health, which at least part of which probably had to do with the pace at which he worked. What do you think about that by way of his example to us today? Uh, the pace at which he worked, the amount that he did, when you think about marriage and all of that, what's your take on that? Man, he, you know, one of the positive things was even though the pace that he worked, he did it with his wife. She was very mm-hmm. much a part of, of his ministry. And so there's a lot of stories of marriage that's falling apart. His was not one of them. Right. Um, it's a tough one, man, because, I mean, th- there is no question this guy worked himself to death. Yeah. Um, there is There is no question that he thought it was valuable to do the work of two men, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and he probably worked himself to death. I mean, there, there, there's a, there's probably a lot of credence to the fact that this guy was sick so much and dealt with so much depression because he was depleted. But at the end of the day, I mean, can you think of a pastor that had a greater impact no, <laughs> on yeah. church history than Charles Spurgeon? I can't. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so man, you know, could you go back and, and say, probably if I could give Charles Spurgeon advice, if I could go back in a time machine, yeah. I would say, man, dial it back enough. Mm-hmm. to where you can live long enough to have an even greater impact. Yeah. Um, but to answer her question, I do think there is a connection between the, his his volume and intensity of work and his success. He was obviously a preacher mm-hmm. that you know was maybe the best preacher in in church history apart from Christ. You know, he yeah. his command of the English language was unbelievable. Um, but again, he he accomplished so much for the city of London. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote so ver- uh, voraciously that he, you know, we have this volume of his work that is maybe greater than any other pastor in history. And yeah. so, um, I absolutely think there's a connection, but I think he could have balanced it in such a way to to uh, make a longer impact, if you yeah. will. All right. Last question is uh, Spurgeon's life is filled with amazing stories. And so uh, you've probably done more research than most on his life. And so I'm just curious, just for you personally, what's one of your favorite stories about Spurgeon? He befriended this uh, former slave named Thomas Johnson <laughs> and uh, All right, apart brought from that to uh, <laughs> England to educate him, become a uh, yeah. man. Dude, yeah, that's like that's like asking you what what's your uh, What's your favorite story of your child or something? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, he 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 and Thomas have become like friends to me and Aaron. Yeah. You know, setting the pen down at the end of this book was was difficult because we'd come to know these guys, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with them in heaven. Yeah. Um. Man, what is a probably my. 
it's not necessarily a single story, if you will, because I have some some single stories that are really funny, but I don't yeah. know that I have a single story that that's more impactful to me. I think the thing that has had the greatest impact on my life is not his preaching, but it's the mm-hmm. way that his church impacted the city of London. Hmm. Um, that that I was asked at the beginning of the Austin Stone, what what church are you going to model the Austin Stone after? And everybody expects you to answer Willow Creek or Saddleback or North Point. Yeah, and I would always answer the question. I'm modeling after Metropolitan Tabernacle from the 1850s, hmm. and they they were having a uh, there's huge industrial revolution going on at that particular time. People were flooding into the city. The the level of poverty that just doubled overnight. The population um, was growing like crazy, and their church made the decision: we're not just gonna we're not gonna move to the suburbs. We're not gonna go away from the hurt and the pain. We're gonna stay right here in the middle of the city, and we're gonna impact the city for the glory of God. And some of the things they did, the orphanage they started. Um, that, that housed 700 orphans, the old folks' homes. There was 15 old folks' homes they started to help take care of people that were in their life with dignity, the way they ministered to poor and rural pastors, the way that they, uh, you know, their influence on the city of London was such that it was said of them that if they kind of um, closed their doors, that the city of London would have grieved. Um, and, you know, it, their their impact was not only spiritual, but it was also educational, it was cultural, and it was uh um, artistic and it was political and they just had a massive impact for the cause of Christ in the city of London and so I would say the example of the way that he led his church to be a church kind of for the city mm-hmm. um, and impact the city for the name of Jesus has been really inspiring to me. That's a great, great answer. Well, uh, the book again is Steal Away Home. Uh, it is an exceptional story. Uh, you and Aaron did an awesome job. So thanks for your labor in that. Thank you for your work at the Austin Stone and uh, the way that you've blessed so many of us and thanks for coming on in the room. Man, thank you for having me. It's been a been an honor. Well, our thanks to Matt uh, for coming on in the room and for um, uh, for his work and Aaron's work in writing uh, "Steal Away Home," uh, as well as as what they're doing at the Austin Stone. I know uh, that that church is having not only impact in the city of Austin, uh, but. Uh, around the country, around the world. And so our thanks to him. Uh, We are going to have another episode next week uh, with Mike Cosper. Uh, And uh, he and I sat down and talked about a number of things. We talked about worship. We talked about um, uh, his new book, Recapturing the Wonder. And, uh, and it was a really good, he's com- a smart dude. He, he's a very smart dude. Uh, and he's also a very kind dude. And, um, uh, those types of dude are rare these rare. days. The combination of those two things is a rare combo. Yes. Very smart yet warm and kind. And that's, that's yeah. Mike. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, um, you can uh, you can connect with us. Find me on social media at Scott Holthouse. And you can find me at, at Ryan Hughley, H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. Uh, L-E-Y. Don't forget. And if people want to check out uh, House and Shield, uh, your new worship project yep. with Julia Shields, uh, is it houseandshield.com? Houseandshield.com. Um, House and Shield everywhere, Twitter, face, Facebook, Instagram, uh, or, uh, YouTube as well. You can watch all those videos, listen to the songs Tumblr, for free. MySpace, Zanga. Yeah, I'm working on the Zanga, working on the blog spot. Um, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, so we'd love to blogger. connect. Yeah, blogger. I think Zanga's my favorite. Yeah. I wish I still had a Zanga, but I yeah, don't. Yeah, it's good. All right, thanks for listening.